This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of April 28th, 2014, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to a special edition of Defender Radio. Defender Radio Special Report. On April 12th, APA converged on Calgary, Alberta to host a celebration of wildlife. Nearly 100 wildlife lovers joined us at the Hotel Alma at the University of Calgary for this event, which featured experts from across the province. Included in that list was predator-friendly rancher Louise Leibenberg and the University of Calgary's Dr. Shelley Alexander. In this week's special report, we're bringing you highlights from the presentations of these two leaders. First is Louise Leibenberg, owner and rancher of the Grazier. Louise's dedication to predator-friendly ranching is admirable and remarkable. Not only does she live the life of a forward-thinking rancher, but she shares her knowledge and takes every opportunity to grow the concept of living with wildlife. Good afternoon. I would just like to thank uh, the association for inviting me to come here. I'm really excited to talk to people about what we do. Um, how we do it. Unfortunately, I only have a little bit of time because I really, I could speak for the whole day. Um, They did give me a little bit more time, but I've got to watch what I'm doing. So I'm going to go through some of my slides a little bit quicker. Uh, As many of you can hear, I've got a really strange accent. (laughs) I was born and raised in South Africa. I spent the first 22 years in South Africa. Then I lived 18 years in Europe, and my plan is the next 20 to live in Alberta. And after that, something warm again. So, <laughs> um, My name is Louise Liebenberg. My husband is Eric Fassappen. He uh, works full-time off the farm. Um, our ranch is called The Grazery. And we ranch in northern Alberta, close to Slave Lake, High Prairie, that area. Um, there is an organization, and it's called Predator Friendly. Um, it's now been amalgamated with Wildlife Friendly, which is an international organization. Um, you get audited if you want to become part of the association. Predator Friendly is a lower um, certification than Wildlife Friendly. However, I actually really like the term Predator Friendly because it's, it sounds almost oxymoronic. I don't know if that word exists. But it sounds kind of strange, you know, that you are a sheep rancher and you're predator-friendly. It's kind of weird. So I really like using the term predator-friendly. Our ranch has been um, certified wildlife-friendly recently. We had an auditor come up and they look at everything that you do. They don't want you to just be friendly to wildlife. They want you to be friendly to your own animals as well, the livestock you keep. So it's very important that, you know, on both fronts that you're doing a good job. Um, we have a fairly big ranch. We run about 600 sheep. We have about 50 head of cattle. We have about, oh, I don't know, 100 free-range chickens. So, you know, we in there, we deal with predators on our ranch almost daily, not deal with them in the fact that, you know, we shoot them or anything like that, but we see them, we observe them, we know that they're there. And I think ranching and wildlife, to me, are both my passions. I actually love both. When I see a wolf, my heart beats a bit quicker. If I see a ewe with a newborn lamb, my heart beats a little bit quicker. So I, I love all animals. Um, even though we are in the meat producing business, I feel we have to be good for both. Cattle ranchers 
or any ranching actually in Canada owns a lot of real estate. We have a lot of land. If we're not prepared to share that land with the wildlife, there really is no hope for wildlife because you can't just limit them to those few little national parks we have. So we need to, as um, maybe conservationists and as wildlife lovers, we need to get ranchers involved. Get ranchers involved to help finding ways of coexistence. So that's what I'm going to sort of talk about. Um, the fact that we are predator-friendly, the, the ranchers in my MD think I'm a wolf lover and that all I do is go about thinking that wolves are sweet Disney kind of animals. Uh, they think, you know, that I go around hugging them and things like that. But, you know, that's not what it is. I respect a wolf for the fact that he is wild, that he is, you know, doing what wolfy things do. Um, I love seeing them, but I'm also real realistic about that. Yes, they do eat cattle. Yes, they do eat sheep. But is it as big a problem as we sometimes seem to think? So to me, being uh, predator-friendly is actually just about having a responsibility to create space, to create um, areas on your ranch that wildlife can exist. It does not mean to say that I don't have a responsibility to my sheep or to my cattle. I definitely do. I've got to keep them safe because I'm allowing these predators on our farms. I have a responsibility to look after them. To me, the key word is coexistence. I can be a cattle rancher here and I can have wildlife on my farm. The one does not exclude the other. It doesn't mean because I'm a cattle rancher that predators don't have a place on my ranch. I actually think they have a very important place. And to me, that is the reason why we applied for the certification. We are the first ranch in Canada to get the certification. We chose to go this route, not because of the added value that we might have in selling our meat products, but it's to open up lines of communication because people say, hey, what is predator-friendly? And as soon as you have that line of communication open, that's when you have the opportunity to educate, to help, to maybe plant a seed that, you know, you do not need to shoot predators, you do not need to trap them, you do not need to snare them, but you do need to do some work to make sure your livestock stays safe. Um, so how big is the predation problem? Unfortunately, Canada keeps very bad statistics on you know, predation numbers. The numbers are very difficult to get hold of because cattle and sheep disappear. You know, sure, it's easy to say, you know, wolf took my calf because if you say a wolf took my calf, you get compensation. If you say a coyote took my calf, you don't get compensation. So, you know, the numbers are very difficult to figure out, you know, what is really going on, how true are predation numbers. So I got these statistics from the U.S. because the U.S. are a little bit more rabid about, uh, you know, anti-wolves and things like that. So it's a bit easier to get information. So cattle mortality is 0.23% of cattle get predated on. That is nothing. Uh, the biggest causes of death are respiratory problems, digestive problems, calving problems, weather problems, and non-predative problems. So looking at those numbers, as a cattle rancher, if I make sure my calves don't get pneumonia or diarrhea, I'm probably going to save more than I would going out shooting wolves. Uh, sheep mortalities, 4% of the sheep inventory. Sheep are just really edible. You know, they're small. They're easy to be predated on. So, of course, the numbers are higher. Coyotes are the biggest uh, predators for sheep. Looking at these numbers, we know there is 
an issue. Like it can be if you are a farm that is getting predated on regularly, you can be wiped out. You can have huge numbers of losses. These are like I'm not saying that every sheep farmer suffers four percent. One might have zero, and another might have ten percent. So you know, if you are in that ten percent category, you have a problem. I don't think we've got to underestimate that there is a problem, but it's maybe not as big as people like to think that it is. Um, a lot of government control programs, the ranching lobby is enormously powerful. They have a big, booming voice. If they say, oh, the wolves are wiping us out, government jumps to solve the problem. And usually the problem is trapping, hunting, shooting, you know, compensation programs, those kind of things. But really, if you look at it, if you have a store here in Calgary, it's pretty certain somebody's going to one day shoplift from you. Yeah, The government's not going to pay you to put in a burglar alarm system to, you know, keep your property safe. It's your responsibility as a business owner. Somewhere along the line, ranchers don't have that responsibility because we hand it over to the government. We say, you know, well, you know, it's your problem. You've got to put on a bounty and get rid of the wolves. So I think, you know, it's, it's very difficult to try and talk in there and say, you know, maybe as a rancher we need to look after our animals, take that responsibility, and it would be great if the government would support us in added research. Maybe if you've done everything that you possibly can to prevent predation, that you then maybe get a compensation paid for your animal. Um, you know, let us try. Maybe putting up a calving fence might be the solution on your farm. Get government aid in that way, rather than just saying, okay, you lost a calf. Oh, you, you think it was a wolf? Great, we'll pay you $800 for that calf. So the first responsibility should lie with the rancher, and if you've done everything you possibly can, then it would be really great if the government came in and helped in that way, instead of the government saying, you know, ah, let's just put a bounty on, get rid of the wolves. As I said, government control programs are biologically really expensive, you know, they decimate areas that upset balances. It's financially expensive. Our MD, where I live, the MD of Big Lakes, they have a wolf bounty, it's been running for about, uh, well, I think, about two and a half years now. They have spent $120,000 of my money, taxpayers' money, killing wolves. And, you know, we're still losing calves to predation, so it's not a solution. It's, it's a Band-Aid. So it's financially expensive, biologically expensive. It's pretty ineffective if you really look at it, because you get rid of the wolves, the coyote population increases, the coyotes start eating more lambs. So, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't really work. I think the worst part of it all is the fact that the ranchers rely on the government to look after their problem uh, creates complacency. You know, why should I do anything as a rancher except report that, oh yeah, I've lost a calf again? Maybe I should be more proactive in looking after what I'm doing. So that complacency, I think, is a big issue because it's an attitudinal issue. So, you know, I think that's the worst part of the whole government control, control programs. And the government actually does very little to promote coexistence. You know, they don't give you ideas or there's not a lot of research on, you know, maybe try this, maybe we will, um, you know, help pay for a elk fence to keep elk, elk from predating on your hay or there's very little uh, financial incentive from the government to help, yet those measures are long term. You know, if you put up an elk fence around your hay yard, 
it'll probably last 10 years, you know, as with the beavers, you know. There are things that last a long time. Shooting wolves today means more coyotes breed tomorrow. Five years down the road, more wolves will come into the area. You open up your area for other predators to come in. It does nothing to help coexistence. More from Louise's presentation is available at FurBearDefenders.com. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at gateswildlifecontrol.com or call 416 416- BearSmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. At BearSmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at BearSmart.com. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg hold, conibear, and other body gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Furbearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at furbearerdefenders.com. To find out how you can give hope for our fur-bearing friends. This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio Special Report. Dr. Shelley Alexander is a world-leading expert on coyotes and their ecology. She joined APFA for the celebration of wildlife. The activities out of Niagara and Coyote Watch you can look them up online, uh, have been, had very successful program using hazing tactics. But hazing alone isn't the answer. Hazing is like going out and actually reinstilling the fear in the coyote that it's not okay to be in these backyards, it's not okay to lie in my backyard. Um, they, they don't understand wishy-washy boundaries. Right? So yes, we like seeing them there, but unfortunately we have to, uh, we have to tell them they can't lie there because they don't know, they can't, they can't handle that. They don't, they don't think the same way we do. Um, so it, we need more than hazing. You need control of garbage. You need some sort of active promotion to keep them away from uh, air human, you know, intimate spaces of humans. Um, and these are the kinds of things, you know, when you start having coyote frequenting playgrounds, you get very volatile reactions from the public. 
And so I did a study on this, which is not an ecological study, it was really a study of media content. Um, and this had multiple aspects to it, but today, just for take-home messages and things you can do, um, of the 453 articles that I uh, read, um, in Canada, in the total of the 12 years, there were only 32 incidents which could be considered attacks. And I defined an attack as a person was bitten or scratched, because that's what people say is an attack, right? It could be an animal came running out and, and accidentally knocked you over, but that is classified as an attack because you end up scratched. Okay? So of, of the 12 years, there was an average of 2.67 bites or attacks per year. Um, there were only 26 of those were actually where somebody was bitten in the hand or the leg um, or a child bitten in the head. Um, and six were attempted bites. The critical thing here, though, was once I went back through all the articles, I found that in every one of those cases where a human was attacked, there was food conditioning. They'd been repetitively fed or accessing food in the neighborhoods where the attacks happened. So that's a pretty clear indication that we need to take some sort of um, responsibility for that. And the second part of this uh, is that the domestic animal handling issue, we often characterize when a dog runs into the bush and then all of a sudden comes back and it's, it's got bites all over it, we say, coyotes attacked my dog. Um, and when I read all of these cases across Canada, um, what was the pattern that I saw was my coyote, the person would report, my, sorry, the person would report, my dog ran after the coyote into the bush and came back. And it was all, it had been attacked. And the, the, the pattern that emerged was not that coyotes came out to big dogs and attacked them, but that big and medium dogs actually ran in to these areas. And 90, you know, 93% of the cases where animals were attacked, in quotes, um, the dog was not leashed. So the person talks about that. They say the dog ran away. Um, Large and medium dogs, what I found by the descriptions, you can do a forensic analysis of the bite patterning, is that they were territorial defense bites. If someone says to you, oh, like the recent Edmonton case, um, you know, they, they were attacking the dog, they probably meant to eat it, you know, and there were maybe six coyotes on one dog, but the, coyote, but the dog escaped, but they probably meant to eat it. My response to that is, six on one, even one on one dog, if, they, if the coyote meant to kill it, it will, for food, it will be dead, right? Those are defensive acts. And so that's our problem, not the, the uh, coyote's problem. And this time of year, of course, is denning season, so it's the time that we have more conflict with that because they're, they're wanting to protect them. So dogs running in are a problem. Um, of the dogs, small dogs is a little different story. Um, 26 of the small dogs were attacked in yards. And the only thing that I could bring out of this was that 18 of them um, were killed of those 26 when there was no human. So the little dog was running around the backyard. Coyotes have probably been hanging around that neighborhood for a while eating garbage. They see this little thing, and that's what they, they take it. But eight of those, um, so almost half of them survived when the human came out screaming or throwing rocks, the coyote would drop it. Okay, so there are some actions that we can take. Like, if you know coyotes live in a neighborhood, you don't leave small dogs unattended. Um, but there were cases where there were direct encounters with small dogs on leashes, um, but not deaths on leash. So just like Louise was talking about, fear uh, is an important emotion. And in all of the articles that I read, one of the key things that was expressed was 
uh, fear for, for, for your children, for your own safety, etc. Um, so huge fear uh, response when these things happen. And the problem with fear is people don't know where to go with that stuff. Um, and unless they have the information to tell them what are the actual statistics uh, on, on how much at risk you are, these kinds of things happen. So in 2009, and there was a lot of play in the media over an attack in Nova Scotia and over about three different events in Saskatchewan. And there was a full-on cull launched in Saskatchewan with 71,000 coyotes killed on government bounty at a cost of $1.4 million to the government. Um, and so the, the things to think about there are how many calves could have, if, if in fact coyotes are taking a significant number of calves or any calves, how many could have been replaced with 1.4 million rather than a full-out slaughter of coyotes. Um, and, and without any sort of regard for what's going to happen in the ecosystem after that happens, you've taken the dominant predator out of these systems. Nova Scotia, um, there were 2,000 coyotes taken and uh, 1,000 in that one year. Now, there's lots of unreported stuff. But, you know, coyote is, is, is now considered one of the most persecuted native carnivores in North America. And a statistic for you is that there is one coyote co uh, killed per minute in the United States. 500,000 coyotes per year. I had to do the math again. This wasn't my statistic. This was Project Coyote did the numbers. And I kept thinking, how can that be? But 500,000 coyotes, it works out to one coyote per minute um, in the United States shot by a government um, or uh, on just regular people hunting. There's no bag limit on these. Um, so the, 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 one of the problems with this is in eastern Canada, we now have this thing called the snow coyote. We have such extreme pressure on these coyotes out there um, that we're getting kind of weird deviant things happening. Coyote's going to squirt out the end. That, you know, no matter what we do, we've been trying to shoot them for two, but you kill them off for 200 years unsuccessfully, they're going to squirt out the end somehow. And so this snow coyote phenomenon has started in um, eastern Canada. And the suggestion, or the research is showing that there's actually a um, uh, golden retriever gene in here that's expressing itself. Um, but, you know, of course, the first one that gets seen, somebody shoots it and mounts it. Um, anyway, the, the research shows us that killing doesn't work, and so we need solutions, like, like what Louise is talking about. We need solutions. We need to implement those kinds of non-lethal solutions. Um, the research shows us that when we kill on this kind of level, we have loss of social structure, loss of education uh, amongst the coyotes themselves, younger breeders, higher birth rates. And this equals a stressed, uneducated, and rapidly breeding population of teenagers running the show. Imagine that downtown Calgary, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, so, uh, just to sort of close off here, why does that happen? Why are they so resilient, and, and why should we adore and, and, and protect this animal? Um, uh, this is the story about coyote dreaming of North America. Coyote in the in the Plains mythology, coyote is the creator of North America. So he dreams North America into existence, basically creates all the people and, and all the animals. Uh, and so a very, very important uh, animal. And myth really uh, replicates reality in this case. If you look at the first um, coyote-like canid in North America, these evolved in North America. Coyotes don't exist anywhere else in the world. Um, this Eusion divisi uh, was here 7 million years ago. Uh, and we've gone through what's called a process of anagenetic evolution, which is different than when they break off into different species. Over six million years, 
Coyote became a, an extremely good generalist, an extremely good fit for this environment. Um, and so in the, for a million years, it has been in its current form. It's seen an amazing amount of things on this continent, an amazing amount of changes. Uh, it is the true North American species. Um, and so when you consider they've you know, survived all of these things, that's why they are so resilient. Evolution has deemed it so. Um, they have high demographic composition, so they produce quickly. They have behavioral plasticity. So, you know, if they're a little too tired, they take the sea train. Um, they, they are adaptable, and, and the adaptability has this, this two-pronged thing. One is survival, but the second is conflict, right? And so we, but we need to bear in mind that the solutions we've used so far aren't working. This adaptable species, it has survived the ice age. I mean, this animal watched woolly mammoths, right? It saw the coming of the dire wolf and survived. Um, it survived 300 years of persecution, extreme persecution by humans. And it has so much to teach us. More from Dr. Alexander's presentation is available at FurBearDefenders.com. That's all for this special edition of Defender Radio. To learn more about the speakers you heard today or any of the others, visit the Celebration of Wildlife event page at FurBearDefenders.com. Until next time, this is Michael Howie, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.